And we're back for another episode of Peter's Proffer here in the courtroom of current events. We've got another special guest today. Her name is Brittany Maxey, and she is a patent attorney here in Pinellas County. And we're going to talk about patents, trademarks, how you get them, when you need them if you're an entrepreneur or a new inventor of something, and what you do if somebody says that you've infringed on their patent. So it's going to be a cool conversation. Um, Thanks for listening in. If you guys ever have a topic you want us to talk about, feel free to hit us up on social media at Tragos Law or shoot me an email at petertragos at greeklaw.com. All right, so here we go into the uh, wide world of patent law, and we're going to start with Pete introducing our special guest today so you can get to know her a little more formally before we jump into exactly what she does. Uh, Today's guest is Brittany Maxie Fisher, and she is somebody that I've known for a very long time. We were uh, in the Young Lawyers together. Brittany has, uh, is frankly very involved not only in the local bar associations but in the state bar. She has been the uh, president of the Florida Association of Women's Lo- Women Lawyers. She is on state bar committees for things like diversity. She's a generally wonderful human being, a great philanthropist, and uh, I would not suggest that you play softball with her unless you're really, really good because she is, in fact, a co- actually played college softball at uh, Brittany at Ole Miss, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Ole Miss. Okay, very cool. Well, Brittany, thanks so much for being with us today. Absolutely. Thank you all for having me. Sure. And before we jump too much into patents and what they are, um, I want just the listeners to understand that being a patent attorney isn't just like being a PI attorney or criminal attorney like me and Pete. You actually have to jump through some extra hoops. Isn't that correct? Yeah, that, that is correct. So the, the patent bar examination is, is actually a different examination than a state bar. And in order to be a patent, to be patent eligible, you need to have an undergraduate degree in a hard science or engineering. Or it, you can do a combination to where as long as you've had enough classes in those two fields, then you can qualify to sit for the patent bar examination. So not every specialty, which people don't understand in law, is like medical school, where you go to general school for a couple years and then you specialize in, you know, hearts or brain or lungs or whatever. For law, you can pretty much be a general practitioner. You can practice any type of law, but patent law specifically has extra uh, hoops you have to jump through, has an exam you have to jump through, and has some prereqs you have to have, like Brittany just explained. So it's a really specialized area of law. Um, and when we talk about patents, there are different kinds of patents, right? Why don't you tell us what some of the different kind of patents are that you can get? Yeah, so, you know, when, when we're talking about you know, what a patent is, is I think it's, it's important to also look at what it's not. So sometimes people are a little confused because a patent, once it's granted by the government, it's actually an exclusionary right. So a patent grant gives you the right to exclude others from making, using, selling, offering to sell, or importing an invention that is too close to what your product is. And it is only for a limited durationary period of time. So when we're looking at patents, there are three different types of patents. There is what's called a utility patent, there is a plant patent, and there is a design patent. So when we're, most of the time what people talk about typically is a utility patent. 
that is the type of patent, but in that realm, you may hear people discuss the terms provisional patent application or non-provisional patent application. Right. So the utility patent is the patent that most people are granted, and what that actually does is it protects the new machine, process, or system that you've invented, and it protects the structure based upon the function. So that's what the utility patent is, and in order to get that patent granted to you, you can, you can get there by two mechanisms. You can go through a provisional patent application, then into a non-provisional patent application, or you can go directly into a non-provisional patent application. Brittany, I have a question, I, and I've had people call our law office about this. I'm sure you get a boatload of calls about this. Have you ever gotten the call where somebody picks up the phone and says, hey, I was watching TV, and I saw you know this widget, and that's my idea. I invented that. Does that mean that they have some right to the idea just because it came through their head at some point? Yes, yeah, so, so no. Um, it, it, just because it came through their head at some point, it, what we need to do is they would need to take it out of their head and they would need to make sure that they write down in enough uh, specificity that it would allow another person to make that invention. Because when we look at filing a patent application, that's what we have to do. We have to make sure that we're drafting the patent application with uh, enough specificity so that someone else can then take it and basically build that better mousetrap. That's what the patent system is, is established on. You know, foundationally, it's so that the next person can invent the brighter burning light bulb or that better mousetrap. Just because you had maybe a broad conceptualization pop through your head for the Snuggie or the Brownie Cutter, you know, mm -hmm. or the, the, uh, the Pet Rock, you still would need to, to have the, um, the wherewithal or hire an engineer to make sure that you structurally understand how the invention works because a broad concept is not patentable without having that meat and bones from an engineering capacity. And so how does it work? What, what do you need to have to actually get a patent on something? How specific yeah. do you have to be and how different does it have to be from other products that are somewhat similar to it? So in order for, when we're looking at the legal standards, um, it, it, your, your idea needs to be new, useful, and non-obvious in view of prior art. And when I say prior art, what that means is that means from either a patent application that was filed before yours or just something in everyday, in the everyday world. So it needs to be new, which means it can't be a 100% copy, and it needs to be non-obvious. That's a really hard legal hurdle because when we're looking at what's non-obvious, let's say that I have the invention of a toothbrush and it has bristles on one end and a pick on, a, you know, a flossing mechanism on the other end. So what the patent office looks at when they examine your application is they may see a patent on the toothbrush and a patent on the flosser and they would make a determination if one of ordinary skill in the art, that's the engineer or scientist looking at the application, if it's an obvious improvement. So it can't just be a minor adjustment. Let's say that you just changed something. You know, a lot of people say, I changed it 10 15%. That's really not what the standard is. It needs to be a non-obvious improvement on something that's already out there. Okay, so I guess what's the definition of non-obvious then? So non-obvious is what happens at the, at the patent office is all of the people that, that examine the patent applications 
Um, they are either engineers or scientists as well. Some of them are lawyers and some of them are PhD. They all have a certain expertise of, of a disciplinary area. So let's say in my example with the toothbrush, brush, my patent application would go before engineers and scientists that have uh, knowledge in the dental world. And they're the ones that make that determination of would it be an obvious improvement to one of ordinary skill in the art. And it is a very subjective standard. It's not black and white. It's, it's not cut and dry. They basically run patent research and they look to see what else is out there and then they look at the claims of the patent and they make a determination if they feel like your invention is non-obvious or not. So they are the ones that actually determine it? They, they determine it. Okay. And, and Sometimes we get fabulous examining attorneys up at, at the patent office, and they understand the invention. They see what's been out there. They see that old mousetrap and that this one is a little, this one's different, and it's different because of this structure, and that gets it over that non-obvious hurdle. And then sometimes we get examiners that will, you know, argue us to the death that they just don't feel like it's obvious, that they don't feel like it's non-obvious, and then we may have to appeal it. Right, and so you're, yeah, and you're you're getting into kind of another point that I um, was going to ask you about, which is, what do you actually need an attorney for in this process? Because I know some people that have applied for patents on their own, or you know, tried to do it on their own, or through legal Zoom or something like that. But what does an attorney actually do throughout the process of trying to apply for a patent? So what the, what the attorney does is, you know, I will say that the USPTO, that's United States Patent Trademark Office gov, they are very friendly if you call and ask questions. They they hold a lot of programming for pro se inventors to try to help them with the filing of the application. What the attorney does or the patent agent that, that you have representing you, they look at the prior art, they look at prior patents and prior inventions, and they try to craft arguments or craft language that, may, that the examining attorney will understand why your invention is unique in view of someone else's. So that's really, you're hiring that person to make sure that the, the patent language is, is done in such a, a manner that the examining attorney will understand what your invention is. You know, the reality is, is you could file a bar napkin with your invention sketched out on it. That will get you a filing date, that will get you uh, your, your serial number, and it will get you patent pending. But if the patent is not drafted in, with enough specificity, then what happens is it actually could be used against you later down the road because you only have a one-year time period from the time that you make, use, or offer for sale your invention to file that patent application. So the patent attorney is really helping you craft the claims to make sure that you're getting as broad a protection as possible and still getting the patent through the office. Right, and I'm not going to lie, a lot of what I know about patent law and getting patents and trademarks I learned on Shark Tank, so some of my some of my information is going to come from there, and my questions may sound like some questions asked on that show. Uh, so when we talk about patent pending, that doesn't really mean anything, does it? No, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Well, it means that you have a patent application on file. That's what it means. So if you see a product and it says patent pending, it literally means that, they, that the inventor has either filed a provisional application or a non-provisional application, and it's going through the examination or the prosecution process at the patent office. It's not until you see a patent number, like U.S. patent and then numerical after it, or mm -hmm. D patent, 
when you see that, that means that the actual application has made its way all the way through the patent office, and the patent office has found it to be uh, an official patent grant, that's when the rights are bestowed upon you. So when it's patent pending, it just means it's pending. So Brittany, let's just use something generic like the Snuggie. If I would have gone into a Walmart and picked up a box you know, that, in, that encased a Snuggie, and I looked on the back of the box and said patent pending, does that mean I could have taken that product, duplicated it, and sold it w without any uh, risk of any retribution from that company? Uh, no, because if the patent is pending, then what would happen is if they found out that you had knocked off or ripped off the product, they could file um, expedited prosecution pending and with impending litigation. And once the patent makes it through, then they would be able to get back damages against you for patent infringement. Now, let's say that the patent application is not strong and it's not well drafted, so a patent never comes out of it, and they just had patent pending, then yes, you could rip it off and, and they wouldn't be able to sue you because they don't have a valid patent. So let's talk a little bit about the difference between something that's patent pending and then when you actually get a provisional patent because, I mean, from my understanding, a provisional patent is not actually fully their patent type of deal, but it's more than just a patent pending. Yes, yeah, so, so what a provisional patent is, is a provisional patent is a, it's a way to more quickly file the application. Um, oftentimes we'll have inventors, maybe they're going to go uh, and they're going to discuss their thesis, and so we only have a couple days to get something on file. That's not enough time to get a full-blown non-provisional patent application on file. So the provisional patent, it's, it's a way to hold your place in line. And it's a smaller filing fee. The filing fee is only about 130 bucks. And you do not have to file formal drawings. You can use hand sketches. And you also don't need to draft the claims of the patent, which is typically the, the big piece of the patent application. So it allows you to get something on file very quickly. Um, before uh, President Obama, uh, before the American Invents Act, which was um, something that came under President Obama's tenure, uh, provisional patent applications were used a lot more. Now they are only used in certain instances. And the reason being is that, like you said, the provisional must be converted to a non-provisional or it's never going to get to that grant phase that Peter was talking about with the Snuggie so you can enforce it. A provisional patent application is never examined. It literally, uh, you file it, it's a, it's a one-year placeholder, and if you convert it to a non-provisional, then it goes before the examining attorney at the patent office. If you don't convert it, it just dies. But then what could happen is that could come back to hurt you later if you decide to later down the road file something else because you've basically blown your one-year time period. So that one year kind of lets you hammer everything out, get the drawings put together, you know, whatever the lawyer is going to use to try to convince the examining board to actually give you a grant for this patent. It gives you that year time period to convert it to a non-provisional patent. Yeah, absolutely. And everyone's goals are different. Some people, their goal is, I came up with this fabulous idea and I would like to sell it to a bigger company. So they may want to get a, but let's say they're a dentist by day and they invented some sort of um, household cleaner. So it seems like a great idea, but they don't know if the market is, is ready for it. So that year gives them just what you said, you know, time to get the patent application together, but it also gives them time to explore the market, explore funding resources, while still having the security of having a patent application on file. 
Gotcha. So when when you're dealing in this process, you said I think it's a, a lesser fee, like a hundred dollar fee or something for the provisional patent. What is it for a non provisional patent? What does the fee go up to? Yes. So the non-provisional patent is around $800, and that's for a small entity. So um, and there's actually different levels of filing fees. If you are uh, some sort of entity that employs more than 500 people, then you have to pay a large entity fee. If you employ less than 500, then you pay the small entity. But with the American Invents Act, there was a pretty cool thing called that, that came out of it called a micro-entity. And if you have been named as an inventor on four or less patent applications and your tax returns, um, your, your combined house, household tax returns uh, are less than, I think it's around $160,000, you can actually get a 75% reduction in your filing fees because you can claim micro-entity status. So it really helps first-time inventors. At, that's that's totally what they you know right. because when we moved the other thing the Amer- American Invents Act did is we moved from what's called a first to invent to a first to file country mm-hmm. and so a lot of the discussion was that you know bigger companies may have to leg up so they made this this carve out so that first time inventors had uh, the ability to more quickly and cheaply get a patent application on file. So when it used to be first to invent, was it like if I could prove some other way in my emails or you know, I had a previous version of this widget before Walmart came out with it that I was actually the first to invent even though I wasn't the first to file? Right. That's okay. exactly right. And the the thing with that is it need you needed to be the first to conceive of the idea and be working towards a reduction of practice. So that seems so a lot more complicated. So if you wrote it in a notebook because it came in your head but never did anything with it, that's as far as you got. And even when we were first to invent, that wouldn't have held up. But if you could prove that, you know, every day you wrote in your notebook and you were taking it, you know, one step at a time, you used to be able to prove I was the first to invent. There's still are some um, some ways to do that, but I really like for people to, to think in their mind before you go to a trade show, before you offer it for sale, before you show your invention to anyone, you need to decide if you'd like to file for patent protection. Not everything is patentable. You know, there not everything needs a patent. Um, again, it's an exclusionary right, but once you show the invention, you really only have a one-year time period to get that application on file. Right, so, and I guess it makes it less complicated if it's the first to file because there's there's not as much argument or ambiguity as first to file versus first to invent but i'm sure if you can prove that somebody stole an idea from somebody even though you weren't the first to file there's probably something you could do about that i would assume yes yeah it it is for for ambiguity and then the other thing is the we were it was only us mexico and canada that were still on the first to invent system Hmm. So it was really hurting some of our inventors when they would want when they tried to get patent protection in other countries because if you have a U.S. patent, it is only going to uh, allow you to enforce it in the United States. So once some of our inventors may go to the EU and want to file for patent protection, they were barred from doing that because the rest of the world is what's called a first to file. So it moved us in line with what the rest of the world does. If you can prove that someone stole the invention, then it would be a fatal flaw to the patent application itself because it's not the right and true inventor that actually, because when you file, you have to sign an affidavit saying, I'm the right and true inventor and I'm the one that actually came up with this. Brittany, how long do patents uh, last? How, mu- how long is a protection? 
so for the utility patent, which is the, the non-provisional, that's the patent we've been talking about, structure based upon function, it lasts from 20 years from the filing date. But I, I want to make sure that everyone understands that it's 20 years from the filing date. However, you must pay maintenance fees, so you need to pay money to the government in order to, of keep course that, you do. to get that whole 20 years. Right, of course you do. So it's I know so it's a so at three and a half seven and a half and eleven and a half years because we've we've seen things before to where people maybe left their patent in a will because a patent is a piece of property it's something that can be left to heirs and when we go and we review uh, the, the maintenance fees weren't paid and so there actually isn't any property there. Is there an extension? Can you extend past the twenty years? No. Okay. And like you said, it's a it's something that can be left in left uh, in a will, but and it's also something that can be sold, right? You can just sell the patent. A- absolutely, you know one one thing about the patents now. In order to get a patent application on file, you need to have, like we talked about, you need to have your specification, and it needs to be able to instruct someone else how to make the invention. But the patent, the app, the inventor, whatever they invent, it doesn't have to necessarily work. Um, which is kind of strange. Uh, it used to be that you had to send a prototype into the patent office, and now you don't. So I've I've seen patents sell that maybe the inventor had one um, one function in it in mind, but someone else said, you know what, I'm going to take that and incorporate it into something else. So I'm going to buy the rights in that patent. They can also be licensed for a royalty stream as well. How hard is it to get a patent? Like what what percentage would you say of people that call you, does it get rejected or do you tell them like, I already know that there's something like this or that this isn't specific enough? What are kind of the percentages of successful patents that come through for people that are either, either inventing something or coming up with something new? Yeah. So the, a very, very important factor, it's, it's important to do two pieces of research. Um, it's important because most of the time when people call, they say, I thought of this, I've never seen it, you know, I was looking for it, I need it, and so that's why I've come up with it. But it, just because you haven't seen it in the marketplace, it doesn't mean that there was not a patent application filed. So I love uh, Google Patents. You can also do this at the USPTO, but if you go into Google and you type in your toolbar, uh, Google Patents, it actually, Google hooks you up to the USPTO's database and the search bar is a little more friendly. And you need to do patent research in order to see, because I've had people say, wow, I never saw this out there. But when I went in and I put synonyms for what my invention is into the Google Patent system, I immediately saw patent applications on file. Right. Because Let's say that the, the invention, it was good enough for patentability, um, which happens a lot, but the market never took hold of it. So maybe the inventor ran out of money and they never decided and never got to market. Um, so that's something very important is even if, a, even if a patent application did not go all the way through, it could bar your invention if it's too close. So that patent research, it's almost like if you're going to buy a plot of property, you would want to know where your meets and bounds or where your neighbor's apple tree is versus yours. And that's what the patent uh, search does. If I was going to do some research, and, and I'll go back to my toothbrush example, you need to be broad with your language and use different synonyms. So if my invention was a brush, uh, you know, toothbrush with a flossing mechanism, I would use brush, bristles, 
dental instrument. So that way you're you're getting broad enough results to see if someone else has really thought of this before you. So the goal really is to be as broad as possible, to have any chance that it's even similar to a product rather than waste all that time and money applying for a patent just to find out that there's something that's just like the product you think you've just invented. Totally, because then once you know, once you see what the patent results look like, you may say, okay, well, theirs is similar, but this is how mine's different. You know, structurally, mine interconnects in this way, and because of that interconnection, it, it gives you a better grip on the hand tool or whatever it is that you're inventing. But you're going to be about 18 months down the road and a couple thousand dollars in before right. you know from the examining attorney, so it's best to know now. Right, so... Uh, transitioning a little bit to trademarks, um, what is the difference between a patent and a trademark, and what are the different kinds of trademarks that you can get? So, uh, with 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 the difference between a patent and a trademark is the patent protects the actual invention itself. It does not protect the branding that goes a- along with that invention. So, let's say the back to the toothbrush example, it protects the the brush itself. But let's say I call my toothbrush. Um, uh, brush brushing brilliance because you need some sort of brand identity mm-hmm. in order to, to sell that if you're going to be marketing and selling it yourself. So the trademark is actually the word or the slogan or the design that is incorporated with the invention. Now, with that being said, there's a lot of things that are trademarked that aren't patent eligible. There's a lot of hamburger joints around. Exactly, you know, you've right. got all the big ones. The, the conceptualization of a hamburger is not going to be something that's pa- it's not novel enough for patent protection. But when I say Wendy's, Burger King, Five Guys, different things pop into your head with those different brand identities. That's what trademarks protect is they protect the brand identities. Right. Like, like I didn't make the first chicken sandwich, but I make the best chicken sandwich. <laughs> so the, you, the, you can't patent a chicken sandwich, but you can brand the name of the place that actually sells this chicken sandwich. So that's what kind of what you're saying is there are certain things that aren't patentable at this point, but you can sell them in different ways. And whoever's brand is the best is the one that's going to sell the most of them. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So what is kind of the process of trademarking something? How does it differ from a patent? So one, one, one big difference is with patents, it's, it's, it's a federal area of law, and there's no such thing as a state patent or a common law patent. Either you file and you get the patent grant or you don't. It's, that's just how it is. With trademarks, there are different levels of protection. You can file a federal trademark application, which is, again, with the United States Patent and Trademark Office, or you can file state protection, which is filed here in Florida with SunBiz, uh, or depending on where, where you're at in the, in the nation. And then there's also what's called common law trademark rights. And common law trademark rights, you don't file uh, anywhere. They are automatically gifted to you when you start using the brand identity in the stream of commerce. But with that being said, they're very, they're very small because you're not filing and you're not paying the government. So it's more of a geographic bubble that is built around you and the use associated with your good or service. Okay, and the same question kind of about patents. How hard is it to get a trademark? Um, you know, what, what are the percentages of, of times that it goes through? I would think this would be easier to search since, you know, you can call it something as different as, you know, I don't know, uh, brushing brilliance, or if somebody has that, you can be, you can be the brilliant brusher. 
And that's that's a great question. So with trademarks, the this um, the thing to really remember with trademarks is that it, the standard is what is your mark going to cause a likelihood of confusion to a lay consumer? So you really, let's say that you come up with some sort of laundry detergent and you're going to call it tidy instead of tied. Right. That's going to be too close and that's going to cause you an issue because with trademarks, it's an, it's a very lay consumer and so if they are confused as to what that is if it's a laundry detergent and they feel like it's tied it's going to cause you an issue um and phonetical equivalents do matter to the hmm. trademark office so sometimes right. people say okay well you know Brittany, brushing brilliance is taken i'll do the brushing brilliant or something like that like mm-hmm. the or a or and i'll just add something to it that's not going to work either. It needs to be something that's more fanciful and unique to make sure that a lay consumer wouldn't be confused between your brand and someone else's. All right, that makes sense. Um, so we get a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to the show. We're actually interviewing a couple that have started some businesses locally. And so I've got a couple questions from them on if you're starting something new or uh, uh, inventing a product or so dealing with either trademarks or patents, what is some of the things that you need to do right off the bat. And I think you've already mentioned before you go to trade shows or before you try to start selling this product, what are some things that they need to make sure that they're doing to prep their business or their invention? Yeah. So I think the first decision that needs to be made is, is it something that's possible to patent? Is it new, useful, non-obvious and, and patentable subject matter in view of the prior art? And the reason that's the most important is just what you said. It's important to get something on file before you disclose. Um, other things to consider is you know, making sure that you have the correct ownership. So sometimes people think that, and they have invented something, they've come up with the concept themselves, but they needed other people to make the concept become a reality. Maybe they needed to work with an engineer, maybe they worked with a CAD drawing person or had a prototype made. You really want to make sure that the lines of ownership are very clean. And what I like to tell our clients is that when you're, uh, when you're shopping, when you're trying to decide who you're going to select to you know, work with you on your product, whether it's someone to develop your logo or it's someone to uh, do your prototype or the engineering piece, you want to work on NDAs, which is basically non-disclosure agreement. And that, that contractual agreement says, hey, I'm going to let you know what I'm doing and you're not going to tell anyone else. But when you go to hire that person or business to make it for you or create it for you, you must get an assignment agreement. Even if you've paid them, even if you think you have the rights, because it's I've seen so many lawsuits to where the inventor really, they came up with the concept, but then someone else helped them take it to what the patent application said, and that person can come in and really muddy up the waters. And claim so that they also invented the part of it. owner of the patent. If you're an entrepreneur and you employ people, or if you're hiring people with te- or doing a 1099 situation, you need to consider specifically what you're engaging them to do and making sure that you say, this is what you know I'm paying you for, but here's a contract saying I own all the intellectual property that you're creating. Very important. 
Right, and I can imagine that people that aren't business savvy or just invented something or starting their first business, that can be a lot of the pitfalls that they that they fall into is not being specific enough about it. And when you give certain employees or people you bring in some autonomy and they create something in the process, then they can kind of claim that they also helped in inventing whatever this product is. Yes, that, that's absolutely right. That's up. And it's the same with, you know, website creation because the rule of thumb with IP is the hand that creates is the hand that owns. Mm -hmm. So if you hire a website designer to do a website and they're going to make your branding and all of these things, even if you're paying them, the rights really go to that website creator or that graphic designer unless you have that transferring mechanism. The fact that you paid them or you told them how it would look is not going to matter in a court of law. And it's funny because we even know that in our business when we have our website or our logo created, we have to be clear in who owns all this intellectual property and who owns the site, who owns the words on the site and the branding and the pictures and everything that's actually on the website. So that, that goes through and through whether it's a new business or not. Absolutely. And, you know, other things I think that the entrepreneurs should consider is uh, the capital investment that, that they that they are looking to make. Um, while the filing fees aren't tremendous, uh, a state trademark is $87.50, mm-hmm. the federal trademark is $275, the patent is somewhere between one and eight, depend, you know, 100, depending on which mechanism you file. But it's going to take time and, and investment in order to get those pieces through and the longevity of the project or product. If the, if the product only has a shelf life of a year, it may not be something that you want to look at because it's going to take uh, a year and a half to get your trademark through the office and it's going to take your patent probably 24 to 36 months. So I think the shelf life of the actual product is important to consider as well. And when we're talking about doing all this stuff early on in the process before anybody really even knows what you're creating, the purpose of that is so that some bigger company like they say on Shark Tank can't come and squash you like a cockroach um, with all their money. They can push it through so much faster than you can as a new entrepreneur or a new inventor. Yeah, it, it is, and it, and it gives you, it, if you decide to take it all the way through and you decide to be the one selling it, later down the road, you know, we talked that it can last for 20 years, your patent, you may sell it later. And intellectual property, anytime you're going to sell a business or go through a merger or acquisition, um, just like they look at your tangible assets, your machines and your uh, whatever it is you've got, your automobiles, machines, and warehouse, they're also going to look at the intellectual property capital what you've invested to see if you can get more of a return on the investment. And if you haven't protected anything, some of these areas you can't go back. So it's very important to consider from the beginning. Right. So for before we end, I just wanted to talk a little bit about when something goes wrong in the patent world. So when somebody says that you as an inventor or a new business have infringed on their patent or trademark, how does that work? What do you do? What are some defenses? What are some things that you've had in, in your career that you've come up upon where people have maybe done something wrong or uh, skirted a corner or done something they shouldn't have and have infringed on somebody's patent? How does that process work? And what are the actual damages that you can get from someone? So uh, with 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 trademarks, you know, well, first off, I'll just say if you ever get a cease and desist letter, uh, answer it uh, or, or get <laughs> don't just throw lawyer. it away in the you trash know, most of the lawsuits that I see are because whoever received the cease and desist letter just ignored it 
that is not a good thing to do in this area of law. Yeah, we, and we so have clients that just throw away lawsuits and, and then tell us about it 20 days later and say, wait, what happened? I just threw this away when I got it. It's like, well, that was not a good decision. Yeah, <laughs> a- absolutely, because it's a very it's a serious area of law, and most of the time the people aren't just going to go away. With that being said, I have seen some companies be very understanding, and when you contact them, you say, I didn't realize you know, that this was patented, or I didn't realize that you had trademark rights, I'll immediately stop, I'm sorry, and that's enough. And then I've seen times that it's been ignored, and it really makes the people upset, and then a huge lawsuit ensues. So with trademarks, anyone that is using a mark that someone else owns and it's going to cause confusion or has a likelihood to cause confusion, they can send a cease and desist letter. And so it definitely needs to be responded to and you know, you can talk to an attorney because there could be some different um, legal maneuvering that can happen in order to make it a little bit less painless. So what are your defenses for something like that? Like somebody says you're using my trademark, what can you say? It's different enough. I didn't know what I was doing. Are there any legal defenses to it? So with, with the trademark, what, what we need, one of the things is marking. So if it doesn't have the marking, and, by, and I didn't get a chance to talk about this, but by the marking, if it didn't have the R with the circle, that is the, the notifier to people that I've got federal trademark rights and, and, this, and I mean business. So if there was no marking there and, you know, you can say, I didn't realize, you know, that, that you had federal trademark rights. So that's an important piece. On the patent, if there's no, you know, patent number, then that's something that you can look at. Um, sometimes some of the bigger companies are being a little bit more overreaching and they are being too broad and your mark is different. And you can let them know this would not cause a likelihood of confusion. There's also ways to look at their underlying intellectual property, you know, their underlying patent or trademark and find different flaws in that. But if you just took it and, you know, used it, didn't realize they had anything, it really is best to have someone work with you so that you can talk to them and see if you can get it worked out instead of a huge patent infringement ensuing. Okay, and what are some of the damages that you could be liable for if someone does sue you for patent or trademark infringement? So with patent infringement, typically it is going to be what a reasonable royalty rate would be. That's one of the the easiest uh, damages that we look at is, okay, if you take something and you're using this product and selling it, and I would have licensed it to you for 10 cents a part, let's say it's some sort of widget, then you're looking at the reasonable royalty. And so that's typically what you're looking at with that. So it's not like you have to give them, it's not like you have to give them all the profits of whatever it is that you've been selling. Sometimes they'll, sometimes they will ask for that. They Depending will ask on for how close profits, it is. But where it usually shakes out is a reasonable royalty. That's typically where it shakes out with patents. Okay, and is that because, will that depend on how similar the products are? Like if it's exactly the same, maybe you have to give a higher percentage or higher amount of money. If it's a little bit the same, then it's a royalty of some sort? Absolutely. It depends on really what your invention is and then the claim set of the patent and how it went through. So there's a lot of variables that go into it, but the more similar, if it's just a 100% copy, uh, it's, it's going to be a little bit more difficult. Now, with the trademarks, most of the time it's not damages. Most of the time they want you to stop using it. Now, they'll ask for, okay, we would like to know how many you've sold, but most of the time with trademarks they want you to 
stop selling, destroy whatever it is you had the marks on. It's it's more of a stopping mechanism with the trademarks. Okay, perfect. Um, and then on the other end, so let's say you're an, a new entrepreneur, you just started a business or you just started selling a product that you got patent patented. Um, what do you do and what are the steps that you take from the other end if you feel like someone's infringing on your patent or your trademark? Right. So in order for, to, to send the cease and desist on the patent side, you need to have, I firmly believe that you need to have the patent all the way through grant. I think that it makes for a stronger cease and desist. You know, sometimes we see them to where they say, we've got a patent application filed, but the reality is, is what's filed with the office may not be what comes out on the other side because it's, you know, worked through by, by the examiner and you. So once you have that patent grant, then you can send the cease and desist, and then it's typically a claim chart with the patents. You literally analyze the elements of how of the patent language in the claim set, and you compare it visually to what the product is, and you're pointing out the element numbers. You know, the toothbrush example, you'd, you'd have a photo of the toothbrush with the claim set. You've had a photo of your product that is being infringed upon, and you're pointing out to them, look, these are all of the elements, and this is how you're infringing. Okay, so you start with the cease and desist letter, um, and then at that point you can either negotiate a royalty if they agree that there's some... Uh, uh, crossover between their product and yours. What if they don't? What if they just think it's completely different? Um, come get it. What do you do at that point? Yeah, so one thing about the cease and desist letters is if they are written too heavily handed, um, you may be at risk for getting a uh, declaratory action fired, filed against you. Someone's calling your bluff and saying that. But most of the time, I do see cease and desist letters go out. Some are softer language, and then they may ramp up. It may go to a little harder language. After that, what needs to happen is the inventor needs to look at where the where the infringer, if it is a business, where they're actually incorporated. Because the Supreme Court changed where you can file for patent infringement, and it really needs to be, the, the action needs to be filed where the other corporation is um, is incorporated. So we've seen a huge uptick lately of Delaware and California lawsuits being filed there. Okay, so you, you file the lawsuit. You, is it a normal discovery period, just like any civil litigation? Yes, it is. It is. Now, there's other, well, there's other mechanisms as well, but the, the lawsuit is, is typically the, the best way. Most of them, it's done in about two years. Now, this is federal court, so okay. it is a, it's a more expensive uh, area of law, but it's, it's, it's federal litigation. Okay, and then what happens at the end? Is it a jury trial? Is it a bench trial? How, how does it resolve? It, it depends. Um, you can request either. Either uh, Most of the trademarks are going to be jury trials, okay. and a lot of the patents are not going to be. Um, with, the patent, with the patents, there's different hearings and things that take place. Um, so you can request either. Awesome. Brittany, I learned so much today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Before you go, uh, plug your law firm, website, phone number, let people know where they can go if they have any intellectual property questions. Absolutely. Uh, my name is Brittany Maxie Fisher, and we have an office located in downtown St. Petersburg, and we have another location in Sarasota. Um, the website is www.maxiefisher.com, M-A-X-E-Y-F-I-S-H-E-R. The phone number is 727-230-4949. 
Um, we have attorneys licensed in Florida and in California, and um, we love IP. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. All right. Thank you, guys. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, that was patent law. Man, I I really did learn a lot. So I I only know this stuff literally from watching Shark Tank and what I read and just what I've come up with in the the normal world. I'm basically a layperson when it comes to patent law because didn't take the class in college, didn't take the, I'm sorry, in law school, didn't take the patent exam, really don't have any experience with it. Um, The only company I've ever started is the title company, so it really didn't come with anything patented. I guess we trademarked our name, Righteous Title. But, I mean, that was a pretty cool conversation. I mean, I I think that people can learn a lot from it, especially entrepreneurs, how it's better. I mean, just like any area of law, really, starting off calling the lawyer can save you so much time and money that you don't even realize. Could you imagine actually going through this entire process, calling the manufacturer, getting a prototype just to find out that whatever you just thought of... Spending the 800 bucks to file it. I mean, I'm not going to hire a lawyer. I'm going to save money. Instead, I'm just going to waste all this time paying people to help me come up with this invention filing it for $800 just for them to be like, nope, which which a lawyer probably could have told you in 10 minutes worth of research well, like, that you're not going to get this passed. Like they say, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Yeah, I mean, that that's really cool. Well, I'm glad we did that. So I hope you guys enjoyed it, um, and we'll be back with you guys next week.